Acts chapter 2. It's great to have visitors with us this morning on this uh, chilly day. We've had several of those here lately. Glad that you've come to worship with us. Appreciate the song selection. Keith and I didn't coordinate on this, but uh, this, this morning, appreciate the emphasis on uh, sincerity in worship and, and giving us some pointers to help us to do that very thing. And that's what we're going to study this morning. So that's why we're beginning in Acts, Acts chapter 2. The last couple of weeks, you know, if you've been here, if you've been watching online, we've been thinking about uh, spiritual disciplines of prayer and the devotion to prayer that we're to have as the Bible describes it in Romans chapter 12 and verse 12. And then last week we thought about uh, being in the Word, spending more time in the Word of God, and how Acts chapter 2 describes the disciples being devoted to that discipline as well. And so lastly, to conclude, I guess what you might call a, a mini-series to start the year, we're going to think about worship uh, this morning. How can we be more sincere in our worship, more devoted, more zealous? What does the Bible have to say about that? What are some things that might get in the way and certainly there's going to be some overlap in, in previous points that we've, we've thought about in, in recent weeks. But this is what we want to take the time to reflect on uh, this, this morning. So you look in Acts chapter 2 in those verses that we have been considering. It's, uh, we look at verse 46 and 47. I'm going to put them on the screen here. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. We noticed that passage uh, last week in our, in our lesson, verse 46, that this was a daily occurrence, something that they were devoted to. They were united. They had one mind. You know, perhaps we hear that, you know, the word worship, and that's, maybe this is the first thing that pops into our mind, the, the collective responsibility we have that's God given to us to assemble with his people and do the, engage in those particular acts of worship that we've done this, this morning. But worship is not limited. It certainly includes what we've done uh, here today, if in fact we've done it in spirit and in truth. Uh, but it goes beyond that, right? We're, James says in James 5, if any man is happy, let him sing. If any one, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're assembled or, or not. But as you're driving to work, if you're on an airplane, if you're alone in the woods in the deer stand or something like that, you know, you, you have time to reflect on the greatness of God and the glory of God and his love for you and what he's done. And you can worship him in prayer, even in, in song. Maybe not while you're hunting, but, you know, the point is, is that uh, it's not confined to just an assembly. Paul said in Ephesians 5.19, we're familiar with this text, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. We look at this passage many times when we're trying to discern the kind of musical worship God expects in the new covenant. Uh, but I want us to seize upon verse 20 there where the, Paul uses that word always. Always giving thanks. Um, you know, so does that, again, just as we thought of with prayer and with Bible study, when we think of how 
Scripture defines, characterizes worship, or we look at the examples of those first disciples and their dedication to worship, and we, we evaluate ourselves in light of that, can we say, well, my life is devoted to worship? Right? Because, again, it doesn't, like with prayer, like with Bible study, if, if now, if Sunday morning is the only time we're doing that, can we honestly say, well, we're, we're devoted students of the Bible, we're devoted to prayer, or we're devoted and sincere in our worship? We know the Lord foretold that an hour was coming, John 4, 23, 24. An hour is coming and now is, <clears throat> he says, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And this shouldn't be the only time that we do that. I heard an illustration years ago. It's, it's stuck with me uh, because it made it so clear in my mind. Uh, when someone asks, well, how do you distinguish between, you know, a worship service, quote unquote, you know, we call this a worship service, we have it listed on the website that way, and just, and just worship. And an old preacher said, well, you know, when a loved one passes away, even if it's a brother who falls asleep in the Lord, we, you know, we mourn their passing. And he said, you know, do we only honor their memory and mourn for them at the funeral service? Or is that just a particular time that we set aside where we come together and we mourn together and we comfort one another? So if we truly love that person and we miss them, we mourn before the funeral service and after. And so following that, you know, that, that same trend, and that illustration has always been helpful to me because I think it adequately describes how we should view worship. We want to ask ourselves again that question. Well, is that how I view it? Am I devoted to worship, devoted uh, to singing praises to Christ, to praying to Him, glorifying Him? Remember, Paul said, always give thanks to God through Jesus Christ. Worship is one of those things that, again, the first disciples, they were devoted to. We see that here. So let's take some time to think about that. Uh, offering acceptable worship, as the New Testament calls it. I'm pulling that language from Hebrews 12, 28, 29, where the writer says, Since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. In verse 28, your Bible, instead of service, might say worship. And that's one of the words that's translated as worship in, in the New Testament, again, depending on which, um, which translation you're using. But the writer is saying, let's offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Have you noticed, at least in just the handful of passages that we've looked at thus far, Ephesians 5, Acts 2, Hebrews 12, how often worship already is associated with gratitude? That there's this expression for there's this overflow of, of the heart. The first disciples there in Acts chapter two, they hear the gospel preached. They're cut to the heart, right? They want to know what they, they should do, and, and Peter reveals to them, "Repent, and be baptized," and they and they they follow through with that. And there's joy, and there's happiness, and they're glad, and they're together, and they're cherishing one another, um, and they're devoted to worship. And so, even though thankfulness may not be explicitly mentioned there, I don't think we can deny that that was the overflow of their hearts, right? They had uh, so much gratitude. They recognized 
what God had done for them, and, and so they responded with love and reverence. And Paul is saying that too in Ephesians 5.19 to us in Hebrews 12. And so as we think about it, you know, if I want to improve my worship, maybe if I want to be more sincere, devoted to worship, maybe this is a good place to start just by asking, why well, am I thankful? Or have I taken for granted all the ways that God has blessed me? As we sang about this morning in one of our first songs, you know, the food and the clothing, the shelter, the convenient climate-controlled vehicles that we drive and this this building that's we can comfortably study his word in and gather in and and worship together do i take for granted those things do i take for granted the sending of his son and the sacrifice that he made for my sins do i take the time to meditate on these things so that i'm filled with admiration for god and his love and power and generosity or am I filled with my own desire and cravings and pride so that I'm blind to what he's done? Didn't Jesus say in Luke 6, 45, that the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. And I think that's certainly true when it comes to our worship. As we think about the truth of those words, and the examples of sincere worship we have in Scripture, we look at those early disciples, we look at instructions like Hebrews 12, and they say we should be filled with gratitude, always ready to give thanks. It should just be overflowing from us. Can we say that our worship is like that? That is truly an overflow of thankfulness and love and reverence for God? That that's why I, I, I come and sing these songs because of who he is and what he's done for me? Or has it become something mechanical? Just part of my Sunday routine because it's what I've always done. You know, singing is not worship. I know you know this. Even, even singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in and of itself is not worship, right? In the strictest sense. That's the form acceptable worship is to take. But people can do that for a lot of reasons, right? They can sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs for entertainment. And they have. And I have. They can do it for money. What, why do we do it? it? It may be an expression of worship. We know it should be. Uh, but it comes down to us as individuals. What is filling our heart? You know, eating crackers and drinking uh, grape juice that's not worship in and of itself now we do that if indeed we do it in remembrance of christ then it's worship or else paul says in first corinthians 11 we're just eating and drinking judgment upon ourselves you know you see this overflow in in the examples we have of worship in the disciples when they were with jesus for example matthew 14 32 and 33, when there's the storm raging and Jesus is asleep and the disciples are scared and they're trying to wake him up. And we remember he, he gets up and he calms the sea. He rebukes the wind and the waves and the wind stopped. Verse 32, verse 33, those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, you are certainly God's son. Now, do they have to be bribed or cajoled into worshiping him in that moment? Do they do it begrudgingly? Like, well, he fixed it guess we better get down and worship now. 
No. Right? It's ridiculous to think about it that way. Well, I guess we better worship him. Not at all. This was an overflow of their heart. They saw his power and his authority, and they were moved. They, they couldn't help but, but to worship him. Right? We, we talked about the ten lepers that were healed in Luke 17 last Sunday, Sunday night, and how, of course, only one of those returned to give him, to give him thanks. Remember how he's described in Luke 17. He returns to Christ, and he's giving glory to God with a loud voice, and he falls down at his feet. And he's worshiping him. Did that man have to be tricked into coming worshiping or brought, you know, baited in some way? Absolutely not. How sincere was that worship? Think about these ladies in, in, in Matthew 28, 7 and 9. When they see the risen, they see the risen Lord, the angels are uh, at first addressing, they've come to the come to the tomb. Some of these ladies, of course, had probably seen him crucified. They saw his mangled body on the cross. They probably may have been there to see his side pierced with that spear. They knew that he was dead. And they come to the tomb and they're, they're bringing spices and, and things for his, his body, as was their tradition. And they find it empty and the angels tell him, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Verse 7, Behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up to him, took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And how sincere was that worship? True worship springs from love and reverence in our hearts and minds. At least it should. And we see first Christians singing praises praying and edifying one another and giving of their means and partaking the Lord's Supper and all, all these things. But just doing those acts, under, uh, having that knowledge and just doing what we might call the five acts of worship when we're assembled together, that doesn't constitute acceptable worship. They were devoted. You know, you, you, you go back to Acts chapter 2 again for just a moment and I want you to see what is said about the, the state of their heart. You know, we see that they're, they're devoted. We've seen verse 42, continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and a fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Look at verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Your Bible might say reverence. It's the same word. It's translated as reverence. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. What were they in awe of? Now, it says right there, right after that, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. So, you know, it, it could have been as a result of that. That was certainly a marvel. But why is that detail here? And why does it come on the heels of their devotion to the teaching of the apostles? Why do we find passages like Luke 4 that tell us, People marveled, or they were in awe at Jesus' word, the gracious words that were coming from his, his mouth. Certainly, miracles were awesome, and we can read about that. And John 20 tells us he's recorded those very things so that we will believe. But I think these people were filled, at least in part, with this awe and this reverence because of the gospel, the good news that they had heard. Because of what God had done for them and the sending of his son, 
and his awesome plan to save us from our sins. Understanding that and having the opportunity to respond to that and be reconciled to him. And I think I can prove that to you. Because scripture reveals that that kind of all is instilled by God's revelation, by his word. Whether it's taught in truth by inspired men or as we read it today, we can be filled with that same kind of all. As we think about, okay, I want to be more sincere. Maybe I am just going through the motions here lately. How can I be more sincere and zealous in my worship? Well, another good place to start is by spending more time in his word. Again, in Acts 9.31, it says, The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace and being built up. And they were going on in the fear or the awe of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it continued to increase. Now that's at the end of Acts chapter 9. And what we know about Acts chapter 9 is that's when Paul comes to Jerusalem and he's trying to place membership, we might say, there with that local church. He's trying to join them, but they, they won't allow him. Eventually they do. And then he begins working with them. And he's, and he's going around and he's preaching. right? And then this commentary, verse 31, comes on the heels of that preaching and the other apostles, of course, working with him. Right, so how are they enjoying peace? How are they being built up? How are they going on in the awe, the fear of the Lord? It was a result of what? This preaching the truth. You know, David said in Psalm 119, verse 38, Establish your word to your servant is that which produces reverence for you. Let me read that last part again. As that which produces reverence for you. This is what the Amplified Translation says. So it's got a little commentary mixed in, but I, I think it does justice to the, the original words that are being used. Establish your word and confirm your promise to your servant as that which produces all inspired reverence for you. Is that not the very thing that happened in Acts chapter 2? As Peter is expounding upon God's plan, he's quoting the prophet Joel, he's saying all this has come to fulfillment now in God's Son. Before your very eyes. He's been crucified. He's been exalted to the right hand of God. He's, ra he's been raised from the dead. And they ask, what are we going to do about this? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the speaking in tongues, it got the people's attention in Acts chapter 2. And then Peter opens his mouth, and he's preaching. By the time he's done, this is what you find in people. They have this reverence for God. They want to do something. In response here. And they obey and they did, and then they do what? They begin to worship as we see in verses 42 and 43. They begin worshiping in this new covenant. And I believe that's in the fulfillment of Isaiah 12 that Cody read for us earlier this morning. Isaiah 12 is just six verses. But I want to single out some of those phrases. You know, so at the end of chapter 11, Isaiah is describing. The remnant, of, the remnant of God that will be saved, that will return from, from exile. <clears throat> and this remnant is described into chapter 12. And it says, on that day you will say, God is my salvation. Of course, all of that's a signpost pointing forward to the church, right? The remnant of Israel. Romans chapter 9. The new Israel that God would establish in, in Christ. You will say, God is my salvation. You will joyously draw water from the spring of salvation. We echo those words in, in the song, praise the Lord, right? Draw from the springs of salvation. Give uh, praise to his great and holy name. 
So as they see the deliverance, they experience the salvation of God. Isaiah says, therefore, you will do this. You will give glory to God. And so I think that carries with it some implications for us with regard to our subject. Because what that means is we're talking about a people in Acts chapter 2 and Isaiah 12 who were conscious of their own sin, who understood why it was they were in exile, why it was they were separated from God, who are now seeking forgiveness in him, and they receive it. They find salvation in him, and they're filled with such love and reverence for him that they say, God is the God of my salvation. They give glory to him. And that's what you see unfolding in Acts chapter 2. So if you would be more devoted to worship, more sincere, more zealous, we have to remember what we were saved from and the price God paid to save you from it. David said in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Yes, sacrifice was commanded. We know we can read all about it, Leviticus, Numbers, Exodus. But when those sacrifices weren't brought with a humble and contrite spirit, Humble and contrite heart didn't mean anything. So what what gets in the way? You know, we we can't worship acceptably anywhere, I think we've seen, in the absence of sincere effort to serve God acceptably in all matters. That's a very wordy way of trying to say what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24. So I'll just read that now. He says, if you're presenting your gift at the altar... And there you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. And then come and present your offering. So as we often say, you know, we can't just do whatever we want throughout the week and then expect to assemble on Sunday morning or any other time for that matter and worship God acceptably. A heart that is truly devoted to God wants to be acceptable to him in every respect, in every area of life. And unless it is, we can give even the most meticulous attention to details in the worship service, as we call it, but even that's useless. Again, unless we love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Is that not Jesus' point in Matthew 23, in verse 23? He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, but these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Now note that Jesus does not say, if your heart is right, the small things don't matter. That's a perversion of this text, if we come away with that conclusion. But he says, these things you should have done without neglecting the others. So it's important to worship the right way. The form is important, but we must worship in sincerity. The heart should be there. Worship begins with an attitude of heart. Maybe you've heard that saying before, that worship begins before it begins. And that's what that's pointing us to, that sincere desire that we should have. I was glad when they said to me, 
Let us go to the house of the Lord. God abhorred the offering of a, of a lamb or any sacrifice when the heart of the worshiper was not right. And likewise, the offering of an unclean animal would never be acceptable, regardless of how sincere someone was. And I think therein are the two ways in which our worship can be in vain. You know, we might ignore God's instructions regarding how to express reverence, assuming that, you know, any, any way that I choose to express it is going to be acceptable, in which case the Bible reveals that's actually not real reverence. It may look like it, but it's not. As Paul says in Colossians 2.23, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom, but they are self-made religion and the self-abasement and severe treatment of the body that are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So there are apparently folks in Colossae who are making this big show and our treatment of the body and other, and other things. And Paul says it looks good and it sounds good, but it's just made up. And people are easily duped by that when they aren't grounded in the word of God. There's the classic example of Uzzah that I want to bring up on this point in 2 Samuel 6 where it says that the anger of the Lord burned against that man and God struck him down there for his irreverence. Remember, they were hauling the ark <clears throat> via the instructions of David and Uzzah. When they get to a certain point, you know, it's about to fall over. He tries to settle it, keep it from falling over. He touches it and he dies there by the ark of God. And the Holy Spirit says in 2 Samuel 6, 7, that God did that for his irreverence. Now, the, if we zoom out, the, the rest of the picture that we're given in 1 Chronicles 13, 8, is that as they were going, David and all Israel were celebrating before the ark with all their might before God, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. All right, so if you're celebrating with all your might before the Lord, but you do not heed his instructions, it's all for naught. Because God saw that as irreverent. And that was a lesson David learned the hard way. Certainly Uzzah did. And later when David gets over his anger and sorrow and repents, he says in 1 Chronicles 15, as he calls upon the Levites to carry the ark, he says, because you didn't carry it at first, our God made an outburst on us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. So yes, the form is important. We can't afford to ignore God's instructions on how to express reverence. If we do, I believe those passages, we put them together and it's telling us that's not real reverence. From a human standpoint, it looks sincere, but God sees differently. And as we've been discussing this morning, our worship can be in vain if we, if we do know the form, if we do know God's instructions, what he's authorized, but we don't express it from a genuine heart, a sincere heart, then it means nothing as well. For worship to, be God, for worship to God to be truly spiritual, John 24, I've already read, <clears throat> it must be in spirit and in truth. Okay, so what do we do? How do we fix the issue? We've seen some things already. We've seen some answers. But I think often our efforts to improve the worship are only efforts to regulate the form. So we might say, okay, it feels so formal, and it's, like, and it's cold and clinical, and we do the same thing every week. So why don't we just change the order? 
Why don't we insert some new songs? Maybe even change the venue. Let's change the time. Now, those things aren't bad in and of themselves, but they have nothing to do with improving the heart out of which worship must come. And we've seen how to do that already this, this morning. So we don't need to propose emotion-stirring props or anything like this, a lighting effect, a candlelight service, or, you know, let's get some catch-your-melodies going here with multiple parts, thinking that, well, that's, that'll move someone to participate, which it may, but why couldn't that person be moved by the love of God? What moved those men and women in Acts chapter 2 to be devoted to worship? They were told of the love of God. How does the Hebrew writer say we're going to offer acceptable worship to him in awe? With a spirit of gratitude in response to his love. So emotional manipulation will never take the place of genuine worship. What can make worship cold and informal? Well, things we've already mentioned taking things for granted. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and verse 12. He says, because of lawlessness, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. The Hebrew writer, speaking to Christians many years later, Hebrews 3 and verse 12 says, take care, brethren, that there's not an evil, unbelieving heart in you that falls away from the living God. And none of you are deceived by the deceitfulness of Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, rather. So could that be the problem as we examine ourselves this morning? That we're not sincere or devoted as we should be because we're hiding sin. We want to keep on sinning. We're trying to keep our toe in the world. Well... This will not be overcome. That will not be overcome by changing the order of worship, will it? Or dimming the lights or some other artificial device. That will only be overcome when we determine to repent and to to devote ourselves to God once more. James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. James says, draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. How do we do that? He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of God, and he will exalt you. You can't approach him acceptably. You can't worship him acceptably. You can't be sincere in, in your worship unless and until you're honest about your own sin. Until I humble myself before him and mourn over what I've done. Like that example in Acts chapter 12. Like the men and women in Acts chapter 2 who were cut to the heart. They were convicted by the word of God. They said, what do I need to do? We might say, how are we going to fix it? We know we're guilty. Verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I know that we can get into ruts or 
habits in, in our in our worship, and I, you know, I mean, it becomes mechanical, and I deplore that as much as you do. I'm guilt. I'm guilty of that as well. But as we've seen, I think this morning in Scripture, it's not the service that needs to change. It's not the venue. It's not the environment. It's people. It's you and me that must be changed and truly converted. There's plenty of brethren who worship acceptably with three songs and a prayer and then another song. And there's, there's folks who could change the order of worship every week and still not worship God acceptably. Because that doesn't matter. Where is your heart this morning? Where do you stand with God? Is your heart right in his sight? As James says, have you humbled yourself? Are you honest with yourself about your sin? You know, assembling for worship is, is important. We have many lessons. We've had many discussions about that. And I'm so glad that you're here this morning, that you've made that decision. And Hebrews 10, 24, 25 tells us it's important. We shouldn't turn away from it. But really, that decision point is downstream from another one. Another decision point. And so the question isn't really, do you go to church? Do you assemble? The question is, because lots of people do that. The question is, to who or what are you devoted? Whom do you serve? To whom does your heart belong, ultimately? And if you're ready to humble yourself before God this morning, all things are ready. We want to assist you however you can. If you want to make your repentance known, be baptized for forgiveness in his name, you can do that. And we're eager to help you. So please come now as we stand and sing.